This morning's text is gonna be from Matthew 6. We're gonna be in verses 25 through 34. So Matthew 6, 25 through 34, and if you've ever been in doubt about God having a sense of humor, uh, if you know me at all, you know that me preaching this text is absolutely hilarious. I wish God's timing would have landed on loving your enemies or fasting or not loving material goods. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty adequate at trying to do those things. Me preaching on anxiety and worry and doubt about God's care is something that I struggle with significantly. So if you're here this morning and as I'm preaching through this and you're like, is Matt talking about me? Please know that all of this is God just working in my own heart. And this is one of those sermons where I pray that as God is working on me through this, you're able to kind of sympathize and to see God's grace in the middle of this. So uh, pray for my wife and kids as we uh, continue to love me uh, into God's image more and more, but let's turn to God's word and see what Jesus is teaching us about being anxious. Verse 25 says this, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what a most pressing text for the world of which we lived in. Um, we've experienced financial crashes, 9-11, uh, we've experienced COVID. We've experienced the housing market crisis. We have seen uh, record inflation, a war that has just ended for 20 years, and now Ukraine and Israel, Palestine. Father, without you, there is much reason to be anxious about the future. And Father, uh, this word is, is most important for our lives today. Would you uh, speak through me? Would you forgive me? Uh, completely for failing at this routinely. Um, Father, encourage our hearts through this text. Help us to see that uh, our value is rooted in who you are and our security is bound in the person and work of Jesus. So we have no reason to be anxious. Father, help us to see you and you only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever heard of the phrase, Sunday scaries? Sunday scaries. This has become a very popular term in our day. This is that time where you have been a weekend warrior, you've had fun on Friday, Saturday, maybe you started on Tuesday night if you're still in college. However, uh, you get into this point on Sunday where you're laying in bed and you're tossing and turning and the only thing you can think about is what's coming up in the future. 
What's gonna happen this week? What's gonna happen in this month? What happens if this happens to me? What, what do I do if I don't do this thing? And you're constantly worrying about what the future is going to look like and maybe some dreams or hopes that could be dashed and that's considered the Sunday scaries. It's looking forward to the next work week with this fog of worry and this cloud of anxiety around you, not knowing what the future is gonna hold. Researchers have poured into this social phenomenon. Researcher Lucas Frenray said this, this is what breaks my heart about worry. It makes you miserable in the present moment to try and prevent misery in the future. For chronic warriors, this, this process leads them to be continually distressed all their lives in order to avoid later events that never happen. Worry sucks the joy out of the here and now. What's interesting is he did a, a survey of people that deal with chronic worrying, constant uh, anxiety about the future. And what he did was he took this group of people and he said over the course of several weeks, what I want you to do is every night at 10 p.m., I want you to write down all of the things that you worried about through the day and the amount of time that you spent worrying about those things. So uh, the scientific experiment folks, they did this and after 20 days, what they did was they had, he had all these people go back and look at all the things that they wrote down and after 20 days to chart which of those things had actually come true. What's interesting in this study, he found out that of all the worry and all the problems and anxiety that these people had, 91.4% of all the things that they worried about never came true. 91.4 of the things that they worried about never came true. Now, this mainly happened because the things and the events that these people built into their minds never came to fruition. So they were living in their own internal prison, terrified about the future, and it never came to pass. What's even better news than just the 91.4% is that all of us are going to battle worry and anxiety at some points in our lives, particularly as we contemplate our future. And even better than this is this, this isn't lost on Jesus. Jesus knows that we all struggle with this from time to time. In fact, in this sermon that Jesus is preaching, he's spending time talking about worry. He's spending time talking about anxiety. And what we take away from this is that when that fog of anxiety and worry hits, we can have faith for our future. Why? Two things Jesus points out. Number one, we can have faith for our future because God values you. God values you. And number two, God secures you. So because of God's value of you and because God's security of you, you can have faith for your future. Now, we're gonna spend the bulk of our time in this first section, 25 through 30. So when I go to the second point, don't feel like, man, there's another 10 pages of this. No, we'll be towards the end. We're gonna camp out here the most because this is Jesus's largest train of thought here. We're gonna reread this. So check uh, verses 25 through 30. It says this, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here it comes. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how uh, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, context is necessary as we start to unpack what Jesus is talking about here. This is a natural progression of Jesus's thought process as he's teaching his disciples. If you look back, you notice Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He taught them how to trust God in dependence and prayer. He teaches them about trusting in God, not of things of this world, not of material goods, not of money, trusting in God. And all of this is crescendoing to the point of that we do not have to worry about our future because God is in control of all things. We can trust him and we can live our life with open hands, hands of faith that are clinging to Jesus. Now, we need to nuance this because we're good Presbyterians. Jesus isn't talking about clinical um, chemical imbalance in the brain. We could call that capital A anxiety. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. For capital A anxiety, we have clinical professions and medication that actually does help. What Jesus is talking about is more of a lower A, general anxiety, general worry and fear about tomorrow, about the future. Okay, not clinical, but general anxiety, which we all struggle with at times. Now, the reason why he's doing this is because our general fear of the future is the result of our fallen nature. We inherited this sin from our first parents. Think all the way back to Genesis with Adam and Eve. They were lured into thinking that God didn't really love them. Therefore, they needed to be in control of their lives, of their futures. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, meaning they wanted to know what was gonna happen in the future. They wanted this higher level knowledge that God had that they could never, ever ascertain. Therefore, this calls them to sin. So naturally, in this sermon, you can guarantee he's going to address one of our most pervasive fallen human conditions, fallen human attributes, and that's worrying about our future. So how does Jesus tackle this subject? If you look at the text, he says, don't be anxious. Boom, we could close the sermon today with that, right? If Jesus says that, we can bank on that, right? That is a fine sermon in and of itself. We are called to trust God's word completely. He doesn't have to illustrate this, but Jesus being a good shepherd does. He gives us uh, illustrations and he gives us object lessons because he knows we're gonna battle with this over and over. He tells us not to be anxious and he gives us the reason it's because we've seen that God values his children. God's people have the antidote to anxiousness because of God's love 
for us. And this is foundational to how we understand who God is. He's holy and he's loving. And Jesus is teaching God's children that we have a reason for faith in our future because of our value to the God of all creation himself. And how does he illustrate? How does he illustrate this value? He uses lesser things to teach a greater point. This is called an a fortiori argument. Okay, that's the smartest thing you're gonna hear me say today. Jesus is using this logical conclusion of showing lesser things to make a greater point. If this, how much more that? And you'll see the progression of this through the text. And Jesus does this by contrasting birds and lilies and grass as a faith lesson for fallen humans who struggle with God's provision for our lives. Notice what Jesus says about the birds. They don't farm or cultivate, but God does what? God provides for them. The lilies, they aren't working in sweatshops, sewing clothing, right? There's no tailors for lilies, but Jesus says that God clothes them more beautifully than Solomon in all of his glory. Grass, small things such as grass, it's here today and then used for fuel for fire, but God clothes them. If that, how much more for his created, saved, sanctified, set-aside bride will he not care for us? If them, how much more so us? Because he values us more. You see, if God feeds and clothes and cares for lesser created things, you have much reason to rest in the security that God's going to care for you. This is comforting because God's care for us directly relates to our value. You need to grasp that. God's love for us directly correlates to our value. Because we're more valuable to God than birds, lilies, and grass, you better believe that God's gonna provide for everything we need for today. And if he gives us tomorrow, he'll provide for us in the future because the same God that spoke all things into existence, that holds every atom and molecule together by the power of his word, he will also care for us. We are the crowning glory of God's creation. Think about how God cared for Israel in the wilderness grumbling, complaining, hot. Are we out here to die? Manna from heaven. Jesus, we're thirsty. I'm, I'm help, help, help. Jesus, provide water from a rock. God has a past of constantly providing for his people, even in the face of their weak faith. Now, there's another way to live. Look at verse 32. Jesus contrasts this with the Gentiles. You see, there's another way to live here by not trusting God. And when you don't trust in God, then you are left to worry about your future yourself. Because no one else is looking out for you, you have to sit in God's place. You have to accumulate and do more and more and more because your value is tied to your utility. Think about that. I'm only something because of my ability to provide 
My future isn't secure, therefore I have to provide more and more and more and more. I can't stop. Think about those thoughts that we have. What happens if I can't go to work tomorrow? What happens if the stock market crashes? What happens if there's another 9-11? What happens if, if, on and on and on? Retire in this economy? Absolutely not. Milk's like $17 right now. No way I'm retiring now. I've gotta work more and more and more. Worry, anxiety, stress, and fear because for the Gentile, all you have is the here and now, and you are the source of your own future. So everything rests on your shoulders. You can't rest. You can't have value. You can't have peace. And we see this same behavior today. For those of us who aren't trusting in God's care for their lives, you really can't stop. And we see this throughout movies all the time where, uh, the little girl's on the stage at the recital and the dad gets up to take the cell phone call. Or where you can't have dinner with your family, Buddy the Elf, because he's just behind on so much work and he's gotta go to his room and eat dinner in his room because there's just too much to get done. I've seen it in my own life where uh, good friends of mine weren't able to have stable childhoods because their parents were just chasing the next promotion and were picking up and moving every two to three years so they don't even know what being a part of a community is like. Because without God, your value is tied to your utility to provide for your future. You have to orchestrate everything in your life your job, your relationships, what you do and how you do it to make sure that you are successful because no one is looking out for you. This is where it starts to sting a little bit more. This happens with all of us who even profess Christ as well. Out of one side of our mouth, we can come here and worship and pray and sing God's praises, confess our sins, find his assurance, read these beautiful words about God's sustaining care, being more than conquerors. And then as soon as we walk out of church, our blood pressure rises, our anxiety creeps up. We're panicking about Monday's budget meeting. Are we gonna have all the files prepared? Is the Excel gonna work? Is the PowerPoint gonna work? We've got next month's goals and objectives. How am I gonna do this? I've got too much to do. We worry about everything under the sun and what starts to happen is we become short with the people around us. We start to snap at our kids. We're present, but we're not really present. Have you ever had those conversations? It's like you're here, but you're not really here because your mind is worried about a thousand other things that could be happening. A lot of times everybody's walking on eggshells around you because you're just so pent up with so much stress and pressure, you're snapping with your family, with your kids, your coworkers, employees. We neglect our health under the vein of there's just no time. What's really stinging here, Jesus doesn't mince words, is living like this, particularly for Jesus' disciples, for Christians, this is living like Gentile atheists. Living like this, professing Christ, 
is no better than the Gentile atheists of which we do life around. Why do we need this checkup, though? Why does this text that's several thousand years old hit so hard today? Is this type of lower A anxiety and worry, this is thinking of the future like God's not there. That's one of the worst sins that we can commit. That's one of the worst things that we can do is the, the God of all creation that knows the number of the hair on top of our head, even if it's falling out. That God loves us so much and our worry and anxiety creates this world in which God's just not there tomorrow. That's sin. It's this absence of thinking that tomorrow, should God give it to us, like tomorrow happens like the resurrection hasn't already happened. Like Jesus hasn't lived perfectly for us, died for our sins and conquered death itself and somehow thinking tomorrow that God's gonna adopt us into his family and abandon us. Imagine being God and how heartbreaking that is. If God has done everything for us to accomplish our salvation, and give us the faith to even trust in him, how do we think that he's not going to be here for us today and show up for us tomorrow? Now, God's not promising riches here. God's not saying have a little bit of faith and you're gonna have an F-350, crew cab long bed, single rear wheel drive with an awesome deer gun for next year's hunting season. That's not what he is promising. He's not promising gold, riches, mansions, but he's saying he's going to provide for everything you need in the here and now, and you don't need to worry about it. This is what faith means, y'all. This is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. We are called to put our faith in the creator, faith in the sustainer, faith in the one who loves us and cares for us greater than we even care for ourselves. And Jesus says that our value is not tied to our performance, but what God thinks about us. This worldview gets very practical then for us. Therefore, what do we do in the meantime? We can work, we can serve, and we can rest with peace because our future is secure. The net result of this is God's people living for today, being present in the day because tomorrow's not promised. So we can use our skills and our abilities to work hard, honor God, and love our neighbor, and we trust him with the results. We trust him with the results. Now, for my overworkers in the room like myself, the natural rebuttal is, well, what, am I, what do I do then? Am I just supposed to sit on my hands and God's just gonna drop off groceries? What am I supposed to get the flu and just expect everybody's just gonna drop off stuff to my house? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. What you do in the meantime is you be who God has called you to be. 
You be who God has equipped you to be for his glory and nothing more. Just like the birds, the lilies and the grass, they can't be anything else that God hasn't already called them to be and the same is true for us. You were created with a very specific skill set, with very specific abilities and very specific limitations that you must respect. You can do this because your value is tied up in God's love and your needs for everything you need to survive for today and for the future are bound in the person and work of Jesus. And we've got one day at a time to use those gifts for the glory of God and to prioritize our life as we live for his kingdom. And that's called kingdom living. We're gonna see that in just a moment. Next week, we're gonna get into very practical steps of what that kingdom living looks like. But what this means for us is that Christians are called to live a different way. We're not only called to live differently, but we even die differently because we know that tomorrow is secure and our eternity is secure. So, because of what God has done for us, we should be the hardest working and most anxiety-free people in the absolute world. Why? You see, when you start to live one day at a time for God's glory, what starts to happen is you start to focus on God's kingdom more than your own mini kingdom. And then after each day, you look back and you see that God's been providing for me every step of the way. And that past grace fuels your faith for your future because God doesn't have a track record of abandoning his church. The fact that there is a remnant of believers gathered here today is evidence that God loves his people. He loves you. He values you. He's not in the business of saving people and abandoning them. This reminds us that we worship the God of surplus. But too often as his adopted children, we think that we're worshiping the God of scarcity and because God surely can't provide for my tomorrow because he doesn't have the cattle on a thousand hills, I've got to overwork today, abandon the people that God's called me to care for just so that I can work really hard for tomorrow. Church, your father has no lack of resources and he has no lack of love and care for you. Kyle Eidelman tells a story about a time when he was building his business. To get things up and running, he was working 70, 80 hours a week. He's an entrepreneur. Everything literally did rest on his shoulders, so to speak. His wife was telling him, you're working too hard. You're working too much. His doctor was saying, you're working too hard. You're working too much. You need to rest. You need to relax. You can't continue at this pace. You're going to fail. He ignored the advice of everyone around him. He worked and worked and worked, and he became financially very successful, so much so that he was able to buy a building, and as he was moving into his new office, he couldn't get his executive desk to budge one bit. 
He had brought his wife and his children to work with him. He was pushing the desk with all of his might and his precocious four-year-old says, Daddy, let me help you. So Kyle's sitting there thinking, well, yeah, come on. He kind of starts laughing at him. And he remembers several years ago in starting his business, he had this moment of prayer with God and he said uh, he felt like God was laughing at him. Not in a mocking way, but like, boy, come on. What, really? And he started to experience that same thing with his son. And so he and his son are sitting there pushing this massive desk. It's not moving anywhere. And the four-year-old looks up to Kyle and says, dad, can you please get out of the way so I can push this desk into the room? And at that point, God's spirit through his four-year-old reminded him of that same kind of laughter and love that he had for his son was the exact same way that God was trying to communicate to Kyle. He was saying, you think you were doing all this by your own efforts, but it's me, it's I, it is God who's going to care for you. You need to trust in me. You are not going to accomplish this life by your own efforts. Try as hard as you want to, but God will use things in your life to humble you, to help you see him. You see, when that fog of anxiety hits, and if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, dense, thick fog that leaves you completely lost. I don't know what's happening. If you've ever been deer hunting, you know a lot of times it's very, uh, uh, particularly in the mornings in late fall in the south, it's very dense fog. Deers love to move in that because they have this kind of disguise that they can hide behind. But if you've ever shot that deer and tried to find it, you can get lost very quickly. Two steps to one way or the other and you are completely lost. If you've ever been in that type of fog, if you've ever been to the place where you are orchestrating, manipulating, controlling, fighting, for everything to be focused for your little mini kingdom. If that's you living like Kyle today, bring that to Jesus, confess that to him, and then go to all of your family and friends who you've been around and confess that to them as well. Repent, enjoy that repentance. Come back to Jesus who tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light and come and find true rest and peace in him. Very practically, here's some things you can do besides repentance. Go outside, go sit and look at the birds. Go sit and look at flowers. Go look at grass for a little bit and just think about how God has cared for all those lesser created things and then laugh to yourself thinking somehow that God cares for you less than that. Now, some of you might be saying, man, I wish I had a day where I could just do that. That's called the Sabbath. Take advantage of it. Spend the day reflecting on God's word. We have a Sabbath day of rest to set aside where we can go and enjoy worship, enjoy community, Take a moment to go outside, even bring a more seasoned Christian with you who's looked cancer in the face, who's looked uh, loss of loved ones in the face, who's lost jobs, who's lost everything. Just go sit with them outside and say, what did God teach you through that? 
I guarantee they'll tell you, I didn't want to experience that, but I trust Jesus more on the other side of it. Because God can make a straight line with a crooked stick. And what we think is failure could be the exact thing God uses to humble you and help you trust him. Because God loves you and loves your holiness more than he cares about your happiness. And God's not gonna let anything take your love away from him. So if you find yourself overworking, living in this cloud, it, it blinds you and fogs you from seeing God's promises. Turn back to Jesus, turn to community, and go sit outside and let the birds teach you something. That's a lesson for me. All right, so we asked, how can we have faith in the future? We saw because God values you, but lastly, we see we can have faith in our future because God secures us. We see this in verse 33. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's Jesus teaching here? Jesus is teaching that when we realize that our value is bound in God's love for us, then our motivation for living is for God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. And then we start to see slow change from the inside out. You'll notice here, Jesus isn't saying, seek the kingdom of God to earn his righteousness, but seek God's righteousness. Seek God's kingdom, and all of your needs are going to be met. You will be taken care of. Jesus is teaching here to have our minds, our emotions, our will absolutely consumed with God's kingdom, consumed with what God is consumed about and loving him and loving our neighbor as ourself. And what starts to happen when we live like that is that our self-focus will start to dissipate. This is how we mature in our faith. We start thinking more heavenly-minded and kingdom-minded instead of our own little mini kingdoms. It's been popularly stated that when we come to know God, we don't think, of, think less of ourselves, but we just start to think of ourselves less. Did y'all catch that distinction there? We don't somehow think of ourselves less, but we just think about ourselves less. This is a perspective shift for all Christians. This is a distinct way of living. This means that while we are conscious on this side of the grave, we're going to put all things in submission to God as we seek the things of his kingdom. And Keith is going to be teaching through that over the next several weeks through chapter seven, through the end of the sermon. We're gonna see some really practical things, so I'll save that for then. But Jesus is teaching through this, the kingdom of God affects the way that we interact in this world as a very distinct people. The, the way that we uh, schedule our lives, the way that we pray for our enemies, the way that we seek to serve others instead of ourselves. We do this not to earn God's righteousness, but because we're united to Christ, 
And the righteousness that Christ has is imputed to us through faith. So what does this mean for us? This means that in your life, at every side, you're hemmed in by who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And the net long-term effect of that is a life transformed, not by your hard work, but by the work of Jesus, whose spirit lives in you and his grace that makes us seasoned and loving and kind and steady. Have y'all ever met those Christians that are just steady? They're just calm as a cucumber all the time. Make friends with those people if you don't know them. Because when life gets hard, they're some of the most wonderful people because they have walked through the trouble of this life that Jesus has talked about and they know how to smile in the face of it. Not because they're crazy, but because they're full of faith. I pray that I'm like that at 70. I pray that for our church. One of the primary ways that we can experience that type of grace is when we feel that fog of worry, we turn to prayer. It's prayer where we find God meeting us there, right? Prayer is our talking to God and God always directs us back to his word because that's where God talks to us. He's not gonna talk to you through the birds, but what he's gonna use is the birds to remind you of this word that are you of not more value than they. So God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to be in his word to meet him. You need to know that our future is secure and this means that regardless if we are battling illness today, if you're battling a terminal illness, if you are not promised tomorrow, if you're given three weeks to live, if your life right now is in the midst of this fog and all you feel like doing is running around in circles screaming, you need to hear God's word for us. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at the home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You see, church, our eternity is secured. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus and there's gonna be no end to that kingdom. We're united to Christ. We are a part of that kingdom and we have a win-win scenario for our lives. So there is no reason to worry about our future. Jesus said in verse 27, in which of you being anxious can even add a single hour to the span of your life? You might not realize this, but it's good news that our days are numbered because that means God's even in more control. He's not only in control of our life, but our death and even our eternity with him. Jesus knows that our days are numbered and he knows that our sin's gonna try to create in us this life of peace by our own merits and the result of that is we just ruin the blessing that God's given us to not have to worry at all. So what do we do in the meantime? We trust Jesus today. We put our rest, we put our hope, we put our futures in Jesus today, moment by moment. Set today in a future 
that is secured by him and know that nothing's gonna happen to you that's too big for Jesus to handle. If your eternity is secure, know that today's secure and if you have tomorrow, that same resurrected Christ will be there with you, the same. And close with this. According to our nation's Bureau of Standards, a dense fog that covers seven city blocks that goes 100 feet high, imagine that type of dense fog, right? Seven city blocks, 100 feet wide. If you took all of that fog and condensed it into one thing, it would be less than one glass of water. Less than a glass of water. Of all of that fog, you couldn't even get a full drinking glass. Now, compare that fog to the things we often worry about. They look massive, but they often are of little substance. We worry about our jobs, our family, our kids, our health, our futures, our this, our that. We worry about these things. Do you know who's not worried about those things? Our Father in heaven, who loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, to remove that cloud of fog so that we can see him. When you feel that fog, turn to this word. This is gonna be the clearest direction that you will ever get, and God promises to meet you there. And for all of us, at some point or another, we're gonna face that fog. We're gonna face that fog with family members, job, eventually with the span of our lives. But what we do with every single day, whether we're in a hospital bed or we're running meetings, we have value wrapped up in how much God loves us. Therefore, if we're infirmed or leading meetings, we do it all to the glory of the Lord. We do it with joy that same joy that was set before Jesus who endured the cross for us, that same joy that Jesus had facing that future is the same joy that lives in us because we're united to him. And therefore, we're more than conquerors because the cross didn't defeat our Savior. The grave didn't defeat our Savior. He's more than a conqueror. By faith, we are too. So cling to those hands. Cling to Christ's hands because they're the hands that saved you. They're holding you now and your fears will subside because God values you and he secured you and you're never alone. Let us pray. Father, it's easy to, to just say those things. It's another thing to live those things and Far be it for me to be the model of what this looks like. And so, Lord, I confess my desire to control all things, to live in anxious fear about the future. I struggle with this mightily. And I pray, Father, for those of us who have experienced it, are experiencing it, or will experience it, that you will draw us to your word by your spirit, that you would meet us there, that you would remind us as we look at birds and flowers and the beauty of creation that you control all these things, we're the crowning glory of your creation. How much more so will you care for us? You love our families more than we do. You love us more than we love ourselves. 
You have a plan for our future greater than we could ever envision for ourselves. Help us to trust in that reality. Help that truth to move from our brains and into our heart. And may we start to look more and more like you as a result with you getting the glory and fame. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.